0: This is David Ze'ev in Israel. That's who I am and where I am, and I come to you through JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I was on Israeli public radio, Kol Yisrael, and then Khan for over 36 years until just a few months ago. And now I come to you through the new medium of a podcast. And I come to you as Israel's parliament, the Knesset, has opened its summer session and in anticipation of a U.S. declaration opening an embassy in Jerusalem. Days before the opening of the current Knesset session, Knesset member Yehuda Glick of the ruling Likud party looked ahead to what he viewed as the major parliamentary and diplomatic
1: issues. As we've just celebrated the 17th anniversary for the independence of the State of Israel, we are preparing for the summer session of the Knesset. Uh, Quite obvious that it will begin with issues relating to the 70th anniversary including the inauguration of the new american embassy in jerusalem hoping to be followed by many more embassies that will open in jerusalem in the near future i'm sure uh, this session will be running a lot around this issue of jerusalem of the world recognizing jerusalem as the capital of the state of israel and my, in my eyes it is definitely a celebration 70 in Jewish tradition represents the uh, recognition of the Jewish, of the nation. Seventy is the number of the nations, Seventy is the year that Cyrus recognized Jerusalem. Aside from that, of course, uh, this session will be discussing many issues to do with the identity of the State of Israel, issues to do with uh, religion, maybe with the conversion issue, the Western Wall uh, issue, and our relations to the Jews in the diaspora which I believe we should do everything we can to strengthen these relationships because I truly believe that we are one nation. And at the same time, there will be issues dealing with the democracy of the state, as Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, and the borders between the different authorities, the different branches of the Israeli democracy, the government, the Knesset, and the court. Uh, there will be those who will be trying to strengthen or so-called give the court more uh, powers, more strength, more uh, responsibilities, more authorities. At the same time, there were those who will try to limit the boundaries between the different branches of Israeli democracy, and they will claim, and I believe uh, in a way uh, probably both sides uh, have some kind of truth to them, but they will claim that strengthening the division between the branches of the democracy are those that actually strengthen each and every one of the different uh, powers of the Knesset. I do hope we will have a session with more solidarity, more unity, less fighting between each other. But as we know, somewhere in the near future, latest in another year and a half from today, somewhere in the near future we're having new elections, which means early elections and all the parties that have early elections choosing the representatives for next Knesset and here we have a, a potential for friction between different people and different parties who want to get a headline and believe they are those to be uh, elected for the Knesset. So I wish uh, all of us a successful, a fruitful, a constructive session in the Knesset, less fighting, less dealing with small, less not less important issues and more dealing with solidarity, unity, and getting ready for the next 70 years of the state of Israel.
0: Likud Knesset member Yehuda Glick. The opening of the Knesset summer session takes place also in the shadow of the Nahal Safit disaster, in which 10 teens were killed in the Arava Desert in a massive flash flood. As the authorities continued to investigate why the pre-military academy went ahead with the hike despite the weather warnings, we turned to the Jewish National Fund to discuss the search and rescue center that they are building in this isolated area. Eric Narrow is the Jewish National Fund Israel communications officer. Eric, we want to talk to you about what the JNF has been doing in this realm, including the fact that what you established what you call an emergency response center. Tell me about that center, how long it's been operating, and what you're trying to do with
2: it. The Arava Rescue Center is part of a larger network of rescue facilities, as such, throughout the country, working often with travelers, tourists, hikers in Israel's more remote regions. As part of JNF's mission to populate the Negev, one of the big areas that we have to look at is safety and security for the people that are living there, and a big part of that is for travelers and tourists coming in. And so, as part of the development of the Arava. One of the big initiatives that we've been working on, we've had a rescue center uh, and are now working on continuing to not only build the facility itself, but invest in more equipment and training so that we can have more personnel down there in order to accommodate and look after not only the population of residents, but also travelers coming to the region.
0: So, what does that mean? How did you employ your staff, let's say, even more specifically? When we had the disaster at Nahal Safit, when the 10 kids were killed, what did you do? How did you respond?
2: We had a full hands on deck. Not only do we have permanent staff, but we have many volunteers throughout the community that are on hand at a moment's notice. When the incident occurred, members of the response team, both professional members as well as the volunteers from the community, were ready and able using the equipment that they have and training exercises they've done throughout the year prepared immediately to be able to get out into the field, look for not only the people that are uh, under distress, but also looking for others that might not have uh, been on the radar.
0: How do you increase your readiness when you see these kinds of incidents? Much is made about the fact that a flash flood comes so suddenly, as its name indicates, you can't stop them. What do you do now with an incident like this to try, you know, people should stay away? Obviously, that's being debated in the country right now. And we hear on the weather forecasts on a regular basis to stay away and that there's a flash flood alert in various places. But do your people learn from these kinds of incidents about how to do the job better?
2: Always. You're you're always learning. Flash floods are not something that's new. They've been occurring in the areas for thousands of years And our team is aware of the paths, oftentimes, of these floods and and where they'll come. But the response time is always increasing. The readiness and preparation is always increasing through practices, through situations, unfortunately through events such as what occurred last week. Not only do we better know how to prepare for the future, but we are actively training our teams to not only arrive quicker, but make sure that they are on the ground ready uh, at a moment's notice uh, for any future situations.
0: A moment's notice. You know, we say that flash floods, at least as of now, of the year 2018, we can't prevent them. Is there a way, again, the suddenness of this kind of thing is what's so terrifying, is there a way to know of it coming a little bit faster?
2: Of course, uh, weather patterns and looking at um, rainfall coming from the north because the Arava is at such a low point, uh, it's very susceptible to flash flooding. And the ground itself is so solid that it doesn't absorb the water that, that you know ahead of time when they're coming. And in situations like this, we can issue warnings, we can be prepared, we can be on hand. We, we are aware of when the situations arise and which seasons are most deadly there's always a warning that's given out for travellers that are coming to either not go in the area or to go to other areas of higher ground. But the fact of the matter is, you can never really prepare fully for what's going to happen. You can be ready, you can have as much warning and, and foresight in terms of looking at weather patterns and uh, meteorological data and, and other information that might lead to certain conclusions But you have to understand that the people that are going out there every single day are members of the community. They are sitting at meals with their parents, with their families, with their kids, with their parents, when they get a call on the radio and all of a sudden they have to act. And part of that is the importance right now of Jewish National Fund investing in a comprehensive compound for all emergency services that you can have your... First responders, you can have your search and rescue teams, you can have de Vida Dome, your firefighters, which will all be housed in the same facility, making not only the response time quicker, but the emergency services that can be provided are coming from the same place. And that's going to provide not only comfort for the residents living there, but also the peace of mind for travelers coming down into the area, which is very important for the region to know that although we cannot predict what's going to happen, there is a team in place of dedicated volunteers who know this area like the back of their hand, people who grew up there, people who do trainings constantly in hope that it doesn't actually need to be utilized, but that they are ready, that they they know each and every channel, they know each and every wadi and riverbed, that they're aware of where they need to be and when they need to be there.
0: Eric Narrow is the Israel Communications Officer for the Jewish National Fund. Israel's 70th birthday is also the 70th birthday for Phil Chernovsky, Educational Director of the Orthodox Union, the OU Israel Center in Jerusalem, and he's also editor of the very popular weekly Torah Tidbits publication. Phil was born three days before the establishment of the State of Israel in May 1948. We asked him whether being born just three days before the new Jewish state was established had an impact ultimately on his making Aliyah from New York to Israel in 1981.
3: I don't think it did. I will tell you something that did have to do with that. When I came on my first visit with my family in the summer of 1962... And I'm very glad that I had come before uh, the 67 war because I got a certain perspective on divided Jerusalem then. I was 14, and somebody knew somebody made a connection to find a boy and a girl the same age as the state for the official state reception of the president of the Ivory Gold Coast. I think now they call it the Ivory Coast or whatever. And I could never pronounce his name. It was a ceremony that took place on Har Sion.
0: Mount Zion, right?
3: Mount Zion. And I remember being given a little talus to wear around my neck. And I presented the president with a um, silver-covered Tanakh. And the girl gave him flowers. And I really... One of these days, I'm going to try to find out if any of the newspapers have uh, archived photos of it, because I don't, but that's the one thing that I remember connected to my birthday.
0: You've been involved, I can say this, I know this, in education both in the United States and certainly here in the state of Israel, where, as we say, among many other things, you have been educational director of the OU Israel Center in Jerusalem and editor of Torah Tidbits. Tell me about your connection between teaching people Jewish studies, you're always talking about it in Torah Tidbits, and the importance of living in Israel.
3: I point to my time in B'nai Akiva, and then as a madrich, a leader in B'nai Akiva, as the formative years of my Aliyah direction. My parents were very supportive and encouraging in that direction as well. My teaching in uh, the States began, I believe, as a Majerich in Bnei Akiva, was formalized in Hebrew school, where I taught for a year or so, and then in the Yeshiva of Central Queens, which is a Jewish day school, where I taught for nine years till Aliyah. I taught Jewish studies, math, and science, and I've always been a fan of um, interdisciplinary kind of teaching. And as you mentioned, came on Aliyah in September of 81 with the job as educational director of the center, and I've been teaching and writing and educating ever since. So out of my 70 years so far, I would say 55 of them have been in some form of education. That's how I I call myself.
0: And you have not shied away, despite perhaps, I'll say this, you don't have to, despite perhaps the chagrin of some people within the OU, you have been very strong on the point that to be a true Jew, you have to live in Israel.
3: I point to several uh, verses in the Torah, The beginning would be when God first appeared to Moshe at the burning bush. And he says to him, I have remembered my promises to the patriarchs. I have seen the suffering of the people in Egypt. And I, God says, will go down there and take them up to a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, within one verse God states his plan for the not-yet nation of Israel, the family that has grown to be a multitude in Egypt, and he says crystal clear, I will take them out to bring them to the land of Israel. In the following portion of Va'era, the official prophecy that God dictates to Moshe to say to the people includes the coming out of Egypt, the becoming God's nation and his becoming our God, and that is generally interpreted as the Sinai experience where we receive the Torah, and then to bring us to the land of Israel. The delay in that process, we'll call it the separation of living in Israel from Everything else was our fault. It started with the sin of the spies, and that's been perpetuated through the generations. I often refer to today the Jew, sincere Jew, Torah-observant Jew, who lives abroad, who says, I have everything I need for living a full Jewish life here in and I'll allow any listener to fill in their place. And that is the sin of the spies alive and well, sadly, today. Mm -hmm. When a person tells me, you know, I'd love to live in Israel, my heart is there, I have livelihood problems, or I have family problems, I have elderly parents and I can't leave them, I, I relate to that, and my heart goes out to them. But when someone arrogantly says, Israel, what do I need that for? I have everything here. And people have actually counted out how many kosher supermarkets they have and kosher restaurants. And one guy once boasted, we even have a a 24-hour-a-day, six-day-a-week Dunkin' Donuts. And we had just lost our Dunkin' Donuts here in, uh, in Jerusalem. And he was saying like, okay, you live in Israel and you live in Jerusalem, but I have kosher Dunkin' Donuts. So that's been my attitude all the time. It shows up in my writing. It shows up in my teaching. I try not to bash people over the head too hard, but I don't shy away from it, as you mentioned.
0: Well, Phil, we'd like to wish you again a happy birthday, number 70, to you and the State of Israel. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you, David, and thank you, Scott.
0: Phil Chernofsky, Educational Director of the OU, Israel Center in Jerusalem, and editor of the weekly Torah Tidbits publication. This is David Zaev in Israel, together with my producer, Scott Kahn of JewishCoffeeHouse.com.